Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints. Episode 19, our first listener Q&A. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, for the first episode of the Year of Our Lord 2023, we're going to enjoy something a little different than our usual fare. For several months, I've been asking you for questions on the history of Christianity for an upcoming Q&A episode. I'm pleased to say that the time has arrived. And because of the timing, I'd like to dedicate this episode to the late Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, who passed away last week. May he rest in peace after a beautiful life in the service of God. I hope you have all had a Merry Christmas season. Without further ado, let's kick off the new year with some answers to your questions. One listener asks how I go about researching the lives of the saints covered on this show. What kinds of sources are most helpful, and how can we strike a balance between religious devotion and historical accuracy? In particular, this listener noticed that many saints' lives are written in a pious tone that tends to obscure their individual personalities behind traditions that don't always stand up to scrutiny. So how should we, as Christians looking back at the past, correct this imbalance while remaining faithful to the saints as heroes of our faith? Time for a bit of inside baseball. When I'm doing research for an episode... I try to use three kinds of sources. The first is hagiography, the pious lives of the saints written down the centuries as examples of good living and encouragements for devotion. These tell you a lot about how the saints have been received by the Christian tradition, but they're often pretty far removed from the saints as historical figures, turning them into perfect models of virtue rather than real people. The second is historiography, the writings of modern historians, mostly of a secular bent, who view the saints merely as characters from the past to be investigated like any other. These provide helpful context, but they tend to have a problem of their own, an excessive skepticism motivated by an often explicit bias against Christian beliefs, leading to some ridiculous contortions of logic in their efforts to discredit the traditions of the Church. I could give many examples, but the worst offenders are of the Saint so-and-so never existed despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary variety. Finally, I like to use primary sources whenever I can. These are documents from the time period when the saints lived, or as close as we can get. And while they come with plenty of issues, they provide a more direct connection with the saints than do the pieties of hagiographers or the biases of modern historians. In bringing these three types of sources together, I do my best to sort through their conflicts for points of agreement, 
and to find the claims that seem most plausible in context. Basically, treating any historical question like a court case, and the sources as witnesses called to the stand. I don't pretend to do a perfect job, and I'm bound to have made some mistakes along the way. But that's my general method. That makes a fine segue into our next question, about the line between legendary and historical saints. One listener asks if the extra-historical legends about ancient saints, for example, George and the Dragon, tend to come before or after their canonizations. The simple answer is after. The fact that someone has been recognized as a saint and venerated by the faithful is usually what gives rise to legends about his or her life. Stories like St. George slaying the dragon and St. Bridget turning water into beer were usually written down long after those saints lived and died on earth. That doesn't necessarily mean they're not true, and as I've stressed many times in the podcast, such stories can have symbolic meaning, even if they didn't literally happen. But they came about because the figures in question were already known as saints and not the other way around. But I ought to give a fuller answer here, because the listener asked about canonization, the formal process by which the church recognizes someone as a saint. As you may already know, the Catholic Church has not one, but two definitions of saint. In the broadest sense, a saint is simply a soul in heaven. Obviously, as Christians, We all hope to become saints in that sense one day. But that's not what people normally mean when they talk about saints. They tend to mean the narrower sense, a person who has lived a life of heroic virtue and has been recognized as such by the church. Here's the parts you may not already know. The process of canonization as we now know it did not exist throughout most of the Church's history. In fact, it wasn't until the 12th century that the papacy laid down formal, systematic, universal rules for deciding who can be declared as saints. This is why there are so many more saints from the first millennium than from the second. It's not that people in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages were holier than their descendants living in later centuries. It's that it was much easier to be canonized when all it took was the approval of a local bishop. After the 12th century, the popes alone would reserve the right to canonize saints according to a logical process of investigation, looking into the life, legacy, and miracles of any would-be saint to ensure that he or she belongs in the canon. That process has remained in place, despite plenty of changes in detail, down to the present day. The upshot of all this is that none of the saints of the early church were quote-unquote canonized in the same way that we understand that term today. They were often canonized at a regional level by bishops, but not by the pope on behalf of the entire church. Plenty more saints from the first millennium 
were never canonized at all, as far as we can tell, but they're still recognized as saints by the ancient tradition of the faithful. One of the most charming Celtic saints, the patroness of lovers, known as Saint Dwynwen, falls into that category, along with many other legendary figures from that era. Now for a similar question. How many saints are there in all? For reasons that should now be clear, that's a very difficult question to answer. There are more than 10,000 saints officially canonized by the Catholic Church, but that's not including the thousands of folk saints like Dwynwen, those who haven't been formally canonized but still hold a place in the Catholic tradition. Beyond that, of course, we can reasonably hope that there are countless men and women never recognized here on earth who have been welcomed into their heavenly home. These two are saints. I have my own grandmother in mind, and perhaps you do as well. In honor of Pope Benedict's passing, one listener asked if every pope becomes a saint. The answer here is an emphatic no. While I hope, and truly believe, that Benedict XVI will be canonized one day, the great majority of popes throughout the Church's history have not been canonized saints. Out of a grand total of 265 popes, only 83 have saints in front of their names. A handful of others are in the process of being canonized, but the point stands. The Church has only canonized about a third of all her popes down the centuries. This number should give pause to anyone who thinks that sainthood is just a seal of approval from the papacy, a way for the earthly leaders of the Church to pat themselves on the back. The reality is quite different. Most popes, in the eyes of their own successors, have not been saints. Now, there was a time in the Church's history when it was assumed that every pope would become a saint. In the earliest days of Christianity, when the Church was persecuted by the Roman Empire and almost every bishop of Rome was martyred, it was a safe assumption to make. All of the first 35 popes would be acknowledged as saints. The first to break this trend was Pope Liberius, who appears as a complicated character in the story of St. Athanasius, which I'll tell in a future episode. But even after Liberius, the pattern of canonizing most popes after their death continued into the early Middle Ages, only reaching its end in the Saeculum Obscurum, or Papal Dark Age, that lasted from the middle of the 9th century to the middle of the 11th. This was, without doubt, the lowest point in the history of the papacy. A time of rampant corruption, when the noble families of Rome treated the papacy like a prize worth killing for. Few of the popes of that era were admirable men, and hardly any have been considered saints. I'll probably cover the Papal Dark Age in a bonus episode, 
But for now, it's worth noting that the trauma of such a sordid and violent time marked the end of the age when popes could be assumed to be saints. Even after the heroic efforts of sainted popes like Leo IX and Gregory VII purged this corruption and restored the papacy to health in the High Middle Ages, the habits of automatically canonizing popes did not make a comeback. Compared to dozens in the first millennium, the last thousand years have seen only eight canonized popes, with 13 more on the path. Once again, this is not because the earlier popes were necessarily better men, though many of them were great heroes, but rather because the standards for canonization have become so much more strict. Now, there is a postscript to everything I've just told you. Since the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, we've seen the beginnings of a shift back toward the early Christian custom of canonizing most popes shortly after their deaths. Starting with the Venerable Pius XII, the last pope before Vatican II, and continuing on through St. John XXIII, St. Paul VI, Blessed John Paul I, and of course, St. John Paul II. Every single pope who has died since the middle of the 20th century has been canonized or placed on the road to canonization. I'm not including Benedict XVI here, as he only passed away last week, but I'm sure that his cause for sainthood will be open before long. It's too early to say if this trend will continue across the third millennium, but we seem to be going back to the attitude of the early church when it comes to canonizing popes. That's fully in keeping with one of the primary aims of Vatican II, the rediscovery of early Christian ways that have been buried beneath the sediments of history. So, it's not as surprising a change as it may seem. Shifting gears a bit, another listener asks about the relationship between Christianity and the pagan past, especially in the conversion of Europe. I received a bundle of questions on this theme. How did first contact between Mediterranean Christians and Germanic pagans play out? Why did the pagans convert? What happened with the ones who didn't? And how was paganism synthesized? with the Jewish elements of Christianity. As the listener who sent these questions suggested, there's a lot to cover here, and the topic of Christianity and paganism may require a bonus episode in the future. For now, I'll do my best to answer these questions in brief. The first Mediterranean Christians to make contact with Germanic pagans would probably have been soldiers in the Roman army men like St. George. The Romans, of course, had been dealing with the Germanic peoples for centuries before either side converted en masse to Christianity, and regarded them as barbarians for reasons that had nothing to do with religion. It's likely that some individual Germanic men and women converted in the first few centuries of Christianity, though we have little evidence to go by. But the first successful missions to convert the Germanic tribes to Christianity came, ironically enough, not from Catholics, 
but from Arian heretics who denied the divinity of Christ. Perhaps the simplicity of the Arian religion, which abandoned the Holy Trinity in favor of a focus on the Father alone, appealed to the straightforward Germanic temperaments. Islam would have a similar appeal for the Arabs in later centuries. So by the time the Roman Empire fell in the West, the majority of Germanic peoples had already converted to a form of Christianity, even if it was not the kind we now recognize. Only a handful of tribes, notably the Lombards, the Anglo-Saxons, and the Norse, still clung to the old pagan gods. And of these tribes, only the Norse would remain pagan by the end of the first millennium, by which time even they were on the path to conversion. In the intervening years, all of the other Germanic peoples had given up both their paganism and their Arianism in favor of Catholic Christianity. This was a voluntary process. There was simply no Christian power in the West able to force the conversion of any of these peoples, setting aside the fact that forced conversion has always been condemned by the Catholic Church. Quite the opposite. We're talking about the fall of Rome, when Germanic pagans and heretics conquered Catholic Rome by fire and sword. The conversion of the vanquishing Germans by the vanquished Romans was by its nature a peaceful process. There is only one exception to this pattern of willing conversion in the history of early medieval Europe, the case of Charlemagne and the Saxons, these being the Saxons who had stayed in Germany instead of going to England. You may have heard this story before. Facing a revolt of the pagan Saxons in 782, Charlemagne, king of the Christian Franks, ordered the massacre of 4,500 Saxons as punishments. Contrary to the tale we often hear today, that Charlemagne demanded the conversion of these Saxons and executed them for their refusal, the original sources make hardly any mention of religion. The earliest annals are clear that the king was putting down a revolt by a rival tribe against his rule, not forcing pagans to convert to Christianity. Like it or not, rulers of all faiths throughout history have taken decisive and often brutal action to suppress rebellions, from the pharaohs of Egypt right down to Abraham Lincoln. But whatever his motives, Charlemagne was roundly condemned by the church, both at the time and ever since, for his harsh treatment of the Saxons. No less a luminary than St. Alcuin of York, the brilliant English intellectual living at Charlemagne's courts, implored the king to show mercy to his Saxon foes, arguing that he would drive away more souls from Christianity than he could possibly win through fear. That has been the consistent stance of the Catholic Church towards conversion throughout history. It has to be peaceful and voluntary. And in the vast majority of cases, it has been. So if the pagans weren't converted by force, 
Why did they convert? Needless to say, that's a bigger question than I can properly answer in a space like this. No doubt the reason was slightly different for everyone. That's just how conversions work. According to one of the leading experts on this issue, sociologist Rodney Stark, conversion to Christianity in the ancient worlds was often a matter of who you knew. If your friends were Christian, your family was Christian, and you surrounded yourself with Christians on a day-to-day basis, chances were you'd become Christian too. But that doesn't really answer the question, does it? What about those who converted before it was cool? The early adopters of Christianity, who risked torture and death for a religion that no one around them accepted. And, just as importantly, why did people stay Christian instead of giving it up like a passing fad? If it were only a social movement, as we say nowadays, Christianity could have died out like any of the countless other cults that found followers in late antiquity. The mystery cults of Mithras, Mani, and Magna Mater were all popular among the same kinds of people who were often drawn to Christianity. Soldiers, travelers, and city dwellers. So why did their religions disappear while Christianity endured for 2,000 years? Obviously, as a Christian, I'm inclined to say, because Christianity is true. But of course, that's not the whole story either. I don't believe that Islam is true, but Islam is the other late antique religion that stuck around to the present day, even if it was, unlike Christianity, spread at the point of the sword. I think the best explanation for the success of Christianity that people who aren't Christian can still accept is that Christianity offered satisfying solutions to the big questions that pagan religions had asked but could not effectively answer. Questions like, what's the purpose of your life? Why do you exist? How can you be a good person? What's going to happen when you die? The pagans had tried to answer these questions many times, in many different ways, but had never managed to bring them all together into a cohesive and meaningful whole. The great philosophies and religions of the ancient worlds, Stoicism, Epicureanism, and so on, to say nothing of the treasury of classical myth, all held pieces of the puzzle. But it took the coming of Christ to bring them all together to order them in the fullness of truth. Which leads us to the final part of this listener's question. We're told that Christianity synthesized Jewish and pagan elements. But what does that really mean? It means an awful lot. And once again, I can only give a brief answer here. But it's an excellent question, well worth addressing. We all know that Christianity has Jewish roots, and from a Christian point of view, is the fulfillment of the Jewish covenant with God. But it's not simply an offshoot of Judaism. I think it's fair to say that while the origins of Christianity are Jewish, the intellectual traditions of our faith 
come mainly from Greece and Rome. This union of two radically different temperaments, the pious devotion and zeal of the Hebrews, with the broad-minded and exploratory outlook of the pagan philosophers, has allowed Christianity to assimilate all cultures of the world without losing its integrity as one faith. The Germanic peoples of Northern Europe were one such culture, making their own distinct contributions from Gothic architecture to the Christmas tree, to the unified body of the church. The best of the pagan past was brought into Christianity. The worst, human sacrifice, devil worship, and so on, was left behind. We are no longer pagans, but to deny our pagan heritage, as Puritans down the centuries have often done, is to deny a beautiful gift that our faith has given us, a world which has not been condemned, but redeemed by God's grace. Another listener asks about the history of purgatory. When did Catholics start believing in it, and why doesn't it appear to have been a doctrine of the early church? Luckily for me, I wrote a paper on this subject in grad school. And even more luckily, for you, I'm not going to put you to sleep with all the details. The short version is that Christians have always believed in some form of purification after death for the holy souls bound for heaven. You can find traces of this belief in church fathers like Augustine, but it wasn't fully developed and adopted as doctrine until the High Middle Ages in the West, and it has never been fully adopted in the East. Like many other elements of our faith, the doctrine of purgatory as we now know it was worked out through discussions, debates, and clarifications over several centuries and many of its nitty-gritties, like how long we can expect to spend in purgatory and what actually happens while we're there, have been left to the imagination. I recently read a passage from the late Pope Benedict's encyclical Space Salvi on the still-open question of what purgatory actually means. Quotes, Some recent theologians are of the opinion that the fire which both burns and saves is Christ himself, the judge and savior. The encounter with him is the decisive act of judgments. Before his gaze, all falsehood melts away. His gaze, the touch of his heart, heals us through an undeniably painful transformation, as through fire. But it is a blessed pain, in which the holy power of his love sears through us like a flame, enabling us to become totally ourselves, and thus totally of God. End quote. Credit to Jimmy Aiken for bringing this passage to my attention. The Holy Father's point was that we can't exactly know what purgatory, or heaven for that matter, will be like, until we get there. We have metaphors and images to help us make sense of it, but ultimately, no words can capture the experience of the life to come. 
All we know here on Earth is that we'll go through some kind of purification after we die, to make our union with God more perfect. Finally, I've been asked a question about the sacraments of holy orders. Why do nuns miss out on this sacrament when they join a convent, while priests receive it when they're ordained? There are two answers I can give here, historical and theological. Since I'm a historian and not a theologian, the first is bound to be better, but I'll do my best at both. Historically, Christian priests have been around since the Twelve Apostles. As Catholics, we believe that the Sacraments of Holy Orders was established at the Last Supper, when our Lord, having instituted the Eucharist, commanded his disciples to do this in memory of me. From that point on, the disciples were able to invoke the Holy Spirit to transform bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. In other words, they were now priests, and the followers they ordained became priests in turn, forming the chain of ordinations going back to Christ that we now call apostolic succession. While the exact details of the rite of ordination have changed over time, as have many aspects of the priesthood, the core has remained the same. Nuns, by contrast, did not exist in our sense of the term in the earliest days of the church. Neither did monks, for that matter. The idea of living in a cloistered religious community, away from the hustle and bustle of worldly life, is a later development, beginning with St. Basil the Great in the 4th century East, and St. Benedict of Norcia in the 6th century West. While there have always been women committed to celibacy for Christ, St. Mary Magdalene, St. Thecla, and so on, these holy women were not exactly nuns, as we would understand them. Historically, nuns are a more recent archetype than priests, who trace their holy orders back to Christ and his apostles. But I think a deeper answer lies in the nature of the sacrament itself. Again, I'm not a theologian, so take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. But holy orders can be seen as the sacraments that empowers a priest to administer five of the seven sacraments that only can be administered by a priest. A quick recap may be helpful. According to Catholic teaching, anyone, even a layman or laywoman, can validly carry out the sacraments of baptism and matrimony. The Church has rules in place to ensure that a priest is normally present for these, but it's possible for a layperson to administer them. In the case of marriage, it's always the couple who perform the sacraments on one another, with the priest serving as a witness. But that leaves five sacraments, reconciliation, confirmation, the anointing of the sick, holy orders itself, and, of course, the Eucharist, which can only be carried out by a priest. Nuns cannot perform these sacraments any more than the laity can. 
So if holy orders is the sacraments that makes these five sacraments possible, then it must be only for priests. I hope that makes sense. Once again, I'm not a theologian. Anyway, that brings us to the end of our first Q&A episode. Thank you for your questions. We'll do more of these in the future. I hope 2023 is off to a great start for all of you. I'll see you in a couple weeks, as usual, to resume our normal episodes. May all the saints come to our aid, now and always, for the greater glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may they pray for the soul of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. Eternal rest grant unto him, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon him. May he rest in peace. Amen. Thanks for listening, and God bless.